Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. You can follow me on Twitter at FTCNHost. Thanks for listening. In this episode, we take you into a recent panel discussion that the AOC co-hosted with the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C. We were pleased to have three chairs of the Congressional Electronic Warfare Working Group, the EWWG, including Representatives Rick Larson from Washington State, Don Bacon from Nebraska, and Chrissy Houlihan from Pennsylvania. We discussed MSO superiority as it pertains specifically to the Pacific Rim. And of course, a range of topics were also covered, including the defense budget and microelectronic supply chain. The moderators for this event were AOC President Brian Hinckley and Hudson Senior Fellow Timothy Walton. For our regular listeners, you'll know that in our last episode, my guest John Knowles and I briefly discussed this panel event. Uh, So if you have not listened to that episode yet, I strongly encourage you to go and download and listen to it when you have a chance. So without further delay, let's listen in to the AOC Hudson Congressional Panel Discussion on EMSO. Good morning and welcome to the Hudson Institute. I'm Tim Walton. I'm a senior fellow in Hudson's Center for Defense Concepts and Technology, and I'm really grateful that all of you have taken the time to join us for what I think should be a really timely and rich conversation on achieving electromagnetic spectrum superiority with the Congressional Electromagnetic Warfare Working Group. Um, To kick us off uh, and to introduce our distinguished guests and open the floor to them is Brian Hinckley, who's president of the Association of Old Crows. Uh, Brian served for 27 years as a Naval Electronic Countermeasures Officer, um, conducting operations over Libya, uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Iraq, Afghanistan, leading one of the key joint counter improvised electronic or improvised explosive device Mm -hmm. units in Iraq, and then standing up the Navy's first Fleet Electronic Warfare Center uh, before retiring as a captain. He now serves as president of the AOC, which is the world's preeminent professional uh, nonprofit organization focused on electronic warfare and tactical information operations. I think he flew the EA-6 for some reason. I'm not sure it's apparent, but oh, yes, (laughs) that I did. Well, thank you. Thank you, Tim. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. My remarks will be very short because we're here to listen to our esteemed panel. Um, We're very, very lucky to have uh, from Congress representatives uh, Houlihan uh, from uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Bacon from Nebraska, and Larson from Washington. Uh, they have been tremendous uh, advocates uh, with over 20 years of uh, service on the Congressional uh, EW Working Group, um, over, I think, five years, and appreciate yeah. you brand new and, and bringing in some, some new energy and an MIT degree to help us with uh, advancing, <laughs> advancing technology. So it's, it's very, very important. I appreciate your notes, or your words on the AOC. Um, we're very, very proud, and I'm proud to be here to represent uh, over 14,000 members. Um, 
70 chapters in almost 30 countries. So we just came from AOC Europe. Um, we've had events all over the world, and we're looking forward to our big event uh, this December. It's every December here in the D.C. area um, for the next five years. We'll be at uh, the Gaylord. So looking forward to that. But, um, well, let's get started, and um, we'll get into some of the questions that have been uh, sent in. Um, so let me kind of go to the first one here, and we'll talk about last week's uh, National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, I, I know, I know um, Congressman Bacon has, has been very successful at, at getting some language in there and approved unanimously. Um, how... How do you view the EMSO capabilities for electromagnetic spectrum operations? How will they fare in the House's authorization bill? Um, are there particular areas where you've worked to apply either additional insight or investment? Let me start. Okay. Please. First of all, it's great to be back. I uh, joined the Air Force 1985, a long time electronic warfare a uh, guy was RC-135s, EC-130s, wearing my AOC tie today, just to, yes. so Brian asked me easier questions. <laughs> and a little backdrop, if I may, I, we came in, in, when I came in 1985, I thought the electronic warfare capabilities of the United States was second to none. We were the preeminent EW uh, military in the world. We had the iron on the ramp with the, uh, we call it the electronic warfare triad, <laughs> you know, with uh, we had the EA6s, the Compass Call, River Joint. Uh, you had uh, the F4Gs, and we had a great strategy. We had a great personnel development uh, system with uh, Electronic Warfare School. We had a two-star in charge, at least in the Air Force. You had a lot more oversight in the joint staff. But after 1991, when we just totally kicked the living bejeebers out of Iraq, we felt like we didn't need EW as much anymore. So we put it in autopilot. And over the time, it just sort of withered and atrophied. And even in the 90s, I felt like we still had the preeminent EW. But by the time I was a colonel, brigadier general, it was clear that we let things atrophy to a large degree. And Russia and China, in many areas, had surpassed us because they were focused on it. So, you know, one of the, the storylines in EW is if you feel like you're the dominant power, you don't need EW. You need EW if you feel like you're struggling. You have a hard time getting aircraft over a target and back. And you invest in EW. Russia and China were doing that. We were not. Uh, so then when I got elected in 2017 and working with Congressman Larson initially, uh, we've been able to put a lot of good things in legislation. We've been able to mandate the, that the DOD or joint staff put people in charge. That we can hold accountable a new strategy, a new implementation plan. Insist that each COCOM has an electronic magnetic cell to, that can have a standardized way of looking at their electronic warfare capabilities in each COCOM, and we've done that. But in this, to, now to get to your, your question, I want to put that as a backdrop. We did not get much done in this particular NDAA uh, when it comes to electronic magnetic spectrum operations. Most of the work was done last year where we were able to procure four more compass color aircraft. You were doing stuff on the EF-18. Mm -hmm. EF uh, this time it was more because we have a more uh, restricted budget this year. It's under inflation. We didn't get as much done, and it concerns me because we had an opportunity to expand more compass call aircraft, Navy, maybe more Navy EW, and we, we saw very little in the actual budgeting 
that came out in electronic warfare realm. And so I, I, we didn't get as much done as I would like this NDA. Last NDA, we got a lot done. Anything to add to that one? We can move on? Or? I'll just uh, quickly say, um, since I got unceremoniously kicked off the Armed Services Committee, if I could apply to be an associate member of the AOC. <laughs> no. um, as a member, as a, the ranking member on the Transportation Committee, uh, under our caucus rules, I couldn't serve on HASC. Uh, so um, I've uh, uh, had to step off of HASC. But in, I say in the 22 years on HASC, uh, one of the great pleasures has been working on, on this uh, set of issues, and, and I'll continue to work on the set of issues. And if I could uh, um, maybe uh, offer a quick 22-year perspective, is that um, funding for EW or MSO is feast or famine. Um, it's feast when we, uh, when we need it, and we always need it too late because we were in a famine mode, um, and when we think we don't need it anymore. And the truth is, we're fun- we know we always need it. And um, you think about rivet joint or, or, or the growlers um, or, the, or uh, compass call, they're in use right now. Um, all those are in use right now. The growlers out of uh, Woodby Island were deployed last year into Germany uh, in support of the mission. Uh, the, in support of the NATO mission uh, against Russia, um, not in Ukraine, but around Ukraine. Um, so th- as an example of uh, how we continue to use the airborne platforms, and that's where I got first involved in, in this as well, certainly because of the airborne um, electronic attack platforms that um, previously the Prowler, now the Growler, mm-hmm. uh, and I'll continue, continue to do that. But I think, again, it's been feast or famine is one lesson. The second lesson is, kind of Don alluded to, is you need leadership at the Pentagon. You need a training um, uh, aspect to make sure there's always people coming in the pipeline. You need to partner with uh, the research labs, any research labs, preferably the military research labs, and, uh, and, the, and the industry uh, to keep up on um, what spectrum is, how it's changing, how it's being used, how others are using it, and what you need to do to counter that. I mean, those are always the, the four key elements. Uh, and this, and I only know this because we wrote this report, I think, in 2003. Mm-hmm. So um, <laughs> um, the framework's always there. We just have to fill it. And the Pentagon needs to fill that framework, too. Could I add one quick thing? Because I'm the new person on this panel, is the last part of the puzzle, I think, is education. Education, not just of people who know all the things and who've been doing it for a long time, and education of... Um, the HASC and uh, the Intel Committee and any number of intersection um, maladies that exist for this, but also just education of the common member of Congress in terms of why it is that we were talking about these issues and why we care about them and why we need to fund them. Uh, Having served a million years ago, I left in 1992 the military. Um, I feel like everything old is new again. You know, you come back in 30-something years later and it all similar looks similar or at least rhymes uh, and so I think that that's you know another aspect of trying to make sure that we can educate the public and educate the people who are making the votes on why this kind of thing is important. Hey Bernard, if you could just put an exclamation point on something. If it wasn't for Congress, any progress we made in the last six or seven years I don't think would happen. Yeah. Uh, the, the military was not interested generally in putting someone in charge, new strategy, funding lines. It was us mandating it in the NDAA. And a lot of times the military doesn't want congressional interference. <laughs> I think in this case, we, we did some good. I call it oversight. <laughs> oversight. I like that. It's not interference. <laughs> well, ma'am, you've, uh, you've obviously already been working um, through Congress with 
the DOD on improving how we can uh, not only uh, find the right young folks with the right technology to keep our community strong, but also to retain them. Um, so this question uh, follows a little bit more along that, not just the education, but the industrial base that we were talking about partnering with labs, um, whether we're talking about OEMs or whether we're talking about some of the niche small businesses that can bring their capability to bear. Um, how do you view the MSO industrial base for building new capabilities and, and the degree to which it can leverage commercial capacity? Um, I know you were, uh, Congress recently passed the, I think it was $280 billion in the CHIPS Act. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I know you're familiar with that. Um, so anything, I see uh, shoes in the audience, anything to talk about opportunities using 5G or to, to shore up the supply chain, which I know you're personally uh-huh. invested uh-huh. in? Well, I think that uh, this kind of speaks to the conversation that I was trying to allude to, which is it, this is not just a DOD-centric conversation, although it is obviously about national security, but it's also about uh, sharing capabilities, technologies, understanding people across uh, DOD and industry and making sure that we are uh, taking advantage of all of the capacity that we have. And that means uh, benefiting from commercial industry and also potentially 5G as well. And so I don't I don't know how that's all going to shake out. I know that Don asked a lot of questions yesterday when we were at the Pentagon and other places about um, spectrum sharing and about, you know, how we were going to work that out, if we were going to work that out, what the implications would be for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but these conversations can't happen just in the Pentagon, you know, with they need to happen across all of the different parts of, of industry. And, and as you mentioned, in terms of the commercial industry as well, I hope that CHIPS Act as an example will be a beginning um, of a longer process of trying to bring industry um, back here domestically and also, you know, creating jobs and opportunities. And you started the question with uh, a workforce question, I thought, you know, making sure that we also have the workforce that's capable of understanding these issues is really, really important too. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community, for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. 
This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology and for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems, Electronic Systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels, but in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. We appreciate your efforts in that. Um, I think we have a question. I think this the question of spectrum sharing, uh, 5G, S-band interference uh, is, I think, one that, that was started to bubble up in maybe five years ago, but, but now is a, is a pretty hot topic. Um, as you work with your colleagues in sort of other committees and the like, how have those conversations been and what path do you see forward for, I think, DOD and, and other stakeholders to be able to best use the spectrum either through um, allocation, through new electromagnetic battle management capabilities that we could use domestically and abroad. What are some of your thoughts on that, please? Yeah, I can uh, provide some lessons from the transportation uh, world in the last uh, couple of years. Uh, first, I want to say that um, as part of the Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act, we put a, a report in that for the DOD to conduct a study um, on the 3.1 to 3.45 segment of the spectrum. I'm reading the numbers. I want to get the numbers right and, and not make news here. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, that was due in March, and uh, I just want to sit you down because it's breaking news. Uh, the Pentagon didn't meet that deadline for the report. <laughs> um, so uh, we're continuing to press the, the, the Pentagon. And, and the issue there is, uh, um, is you know, the, the, the industry believes, oh, spectrum sharing can occur, and it's all pretty easy the way to do it, depending on how you define it and so on. And the DOD's view is this is our spectrum we need when we need it and can't share it. Um, and is there a place in between? I'm not suggesting that there is absolutely a place in between, but I do know this, and this is the lesson. Um, from the 5G altimeter issue uh, that we had with the FA, and I won't go into it, but uh, it's long and frustrating. <laughs> but what we did, what we found in this in this thing, in this debate um, between the FAA and and the FCC and the NTIA and a lot of other alphabets um, and the telecom industry is that uh, there was a solution, a technical solution, but no one believed it actually could happen because they weren't even talking to each other in the first place. As an example, the telecom engineers 
and the uh, engineers who do FAA engineering stuff have one thing in common. They're engineers. That's the only thing they have in common. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Nothing <laughs> wrong with that. That said, um, you know the term's all Greek to me, right? You can't be Greek or whatever, but uh, with apologies to my good friends in Greece. Um, uh, <laughs> telecom engineers use Greek letters and aerospace engineers Greek letters. They use the same Greek letters and they mean different things for their uses in telecom and in aerospace. That is how basic the misunderstanding is. <laughs> like the engineers can't even talk to each other because their languages are literally different. <coughs> and that's a lesson we learned and it's been learned. We've created a process now because there's going to be 6G and XG and the next G and at some point, um, this altimeter issue is going to continue to evolve with the technology. And I think that lesson can apply to the DoD spectrum sharing issue. It's one of the lessons. They first need to start sitting down and saying, okay, what, how do you use the, the gamma letter? How do, you, how do you use delta? How do you use epsilon? <laughs> Let's start there and then go from there. But right now, you know, we're not, the discussion is saying it's ours, you can't use it, and telecom saying, no, it's totally possible to share. And telecom may be absolutely wrong, and the DoD may be wrong. I have no idea. But they do need to have these conversations, and I think that's what we want totally to learn. I totally agree. What I heard yesterday in the Pentagon is similar to what I hear sometimes on this R's and D's side of things, is that we only listen to each other. You know, and so if we're listening to message points from one another on the D side, and ours are listening to their message points as well, not everybody can be an expert on everything. And so you're just trying to li listen and learn to what the presumable expert thinks. And so if you're sitting in the Pentagon and what you hear is a, a leader that you respect saying something like, well, we have to vacate the spectrum and it's impossible, then you just believe that that's true. And the same goes for the other side. And so we yeah. have to be able to communicate. And I don't think that's happening. Yeah. Those critical mission areas, our S-band areas, very, we're, we were talking to the four-star level yesterday, very important to a lot of our radar missions that are out there, and you don't want to degrade that, yet 5G is very critical to our economy. So they're both very important, and, and I think if, if we could find a technical solution, that's obviously the optimal, uh, but nobody believes it, like you were saying. Nobody thinks it's right. going to happen, um, but we have to prove that it's going to work because we need 5G, and we have to have important radar missions that the DoD operates. Um, but if we can't prove it, you can't just vacate the radar missions that are already out there. So they're going to have to prove that this 5G can operate in, in that space. Yeah. One, I, one of the challenges we had in this debate was the proprietary nature of almost nearly everything telecoms do, and it's nothing against them. It's just that finding out that where a tower sits and uh, as well as which angle the radio is sitting, that's proprietary. And so they didn't want to give up that information to the FAA because they're concerned they were going to share that with one of the competitors in order to, in order to create the space where the altimeters could work. And well, they figured out a way to you know have a third party in between to do that. And I think they're going to run into the same kinds of problems, right? The DOD says we can't share X. Like, well, we don't need X. We need X minus something. And telecom is going to say, well, we can't share X or we can't share Y. I said, well, we don't need Y. We need Y minus something to, to figure this out. But they need to have those conversations. That was really helpful, and I'll sort of offer, if this is a challenge domestically, it could certainly be one abroad, right? So, so here in the United States, in theory, perhaps we could govern how we use the spectrum. It doesn't necessarily mean we will do it anywhere else U.S. military forces will operate, either friendly countries or, or adversary ones. So it's 
we probably need to think of approaches that work here domestically, but also take advantage of electromagnetic battle management capabilities or others so that we can dynamically operate in areas where there will be interference. The That's spectrum will be congested no matter what. Brian, I think you had another question there. I certainly do. Let's see. I, I know we've talked <clears throat> a little bit about readiness. We've talked about the non-material readiness and the training and the workforce. Uh, it's been a struggle. Um, we obviously were, were more successful in last year's uh, NDAA than maybe this year's. Uh, cyber, for instance, the cyber force has done seemingly extremely well. Um, but um, electromagnetic warfare um, has seemed to have not done so well. I mean, we talked about the funding of it. Uh, seems to be the, the last to fund in peacetime and the first to scream for uh, in a crisis. And that, that hasn't changed over the last 20, 30 years. Because we've talked about those, let's go to a specific example. Stratcom um, stood up the, the GEMSOC, the Joint EMS Operations Center, that's supposed to raise and aggregate force readiness across DOD. Do you think that this organization has the potential to do, to do what it needs to do for MSO governance and development? Because I, I'll be quite honest, um, I haven't seen it really produce yet. It just stood up. Yeah, In fact, it's going to be, be it's going to be next week. So next, yeah, I think it's so, next week or the following yeah. week. It's going to actually have its ribbon cutting. Yeah. So I just taped some remarks for it. So it hasn't been really stood up yet. I, I think we need a, a center of excellence that advocates for electronic warfare or MSO. We don't really have that in the military. We need somebody that says and it's going to be at the two-star level, two-star Air Force. Uh, officer is going to uh, command this. So I look forward to having someone advocating and being the lead on, on this whole issue, which we don't have. I personally think electronic warfare or MSO uh, should be under the J3 or the J5. It should be under operational. It should be treated that way, just like any of the other. Putting bombs on target, we're going to put trans on target. Once you, once you move it out of that area, it, it gets put in, and uh, it's not in the main focus of operations. And EW should be the, one of the focus areas of, of operations. But the JC is a product of the work that we've done in the NDA, frankly. We have forced putting people in, in the lead that we can hold accountable. Now, when I, when I first got elected, you walk in any service, you go, who's responsible for EW? And they go, our vice, our vice service chief is. Oh, he's got like 3,000 things he's got to do, right? Well, I want to see a one-star or two-star that we can call a committee and, you know, hold accountable, Right, not I didn't mean the fist thing literally, but we want to hold people accountable. And, and if nobody's in charge, if everybody's in charge, nobody's in charge. Right. And if nobody's in charge, nobody's in charge. I mean, and that's what was going on. So I think we've really made some good pro pro progress here. But my concern is, even last year's NDA, we would have not had the great results. Was for Congress? Wasn't the DoD coming in saying, "Here's our plan for EW"? No, it was we coming in saying, "Okay, we're going to add four aircraft here. We're going to protect this fleet. We're going to do this and that." And uh, so I feel once again, the Congress is dominant. But my co main concern is it's well and good to have JE the, the JEC strategy and doctrine until you actually start seeing, I'll just call it iron, capability. Mm -hmm. The ability to put military capabilities out in the field, then it's all talk. And so I'm seeing a lot of talk, a lot of thinking going on behind, the, behind closed doors. I don't see the output 
the actual combat capability output that we need in EW. And so we're uh, we're not there yet. We're moving. Well, I think a lot of planning, not a lot of output. Do you think the events of Ukraine and the you know kind of last year and so that's happening in Ukraine has made a difference in people's hearts and minds in the military as opposed to Congress? I hate to be the one answering the question, but I'm I'm curious. You know. Well, EW is obviously having an impact or lack sure. thereof. Yeah. So on the downside in Ukraine, think about day one or day two of the war. Ukrainians were shooting down loaded airlift aircraft with paratroopers because they weren't they they did not degrade uh, the Ukrainian air defenses. I mean, imagine an airlift aircraft full of your elite paratroopers on board getting shot down, and that was that, that was going on. We we're decimating a lot. Of, the Ukrainian Ukrainians did a good job really decimating a lot of the uh, Russian air force in their airspace. Conversely, the Russians have been able to be pretty effective too uh, in their airspace. On the other flip side of that, the ability of doing ELINT, detecting where the enemy is operating, and then they will put a, mm-hmm. a very accurate munition on top of that. Both sides have been very good at that, too. And so that's another form of electronic warfare. So obviously we're seeing the benefits of having UW or the cost of not having it both ways in this. And I think that should be an impetus for us. And I think there is, but we're just too slow. It shouldn't take us five years, six years to turn a ship around. And I think I don't think other countries take that long. We're, we're too bureaucratic, too slow at the top, and we're not seeing the product coming out on the backside. Can I say it a, a, a different way? And it's um, perhaps not having served in the military, I get an opportunity to really boil things down to how I get to see them without talking in Pentagonese. Um, and <laughs> if, if a member of Congress can't kick it and break their toe on it, they don't want to fund it. That's why, you know, I always tell people, if, we, if members of Congress were in charge of making, uh, creating aircraft carriers, it would be 435 aircraft carriers, right? One for each of our districts. And, um, and that's part of the problem we face in electronic warfare. It's electrons. You can't kick it. Uh, it doesn't show up on TV and blow up. Um, it doesn't, you know, none of this happens. But mention Ukraine, we know how it's being used, and it's being used very well and very effectively. In many ways, um, we're also we know for falling behind maybe some others, and if it's that important, then we should be funding it. It's just hard to get people to say, "Well, what's an electron look like?" It's like I, I forgot a long time ago what an electron looks like. I know they're really important, um, and we need to fund them. I know they're really tiny too. Yeah, yeah, really, t- and they're not made of steel, and I can't break my toe on it. But we need to. We need to be advocates and uh, promoters and evangelists for, for, it, um, for this as well. To break through the net. You know, I, I love the frigate class because the, they're all going to be in my district. I love it. <laughs> and I had nothing to do with that decision as well. It's all good for me. Um, but, uh, we, but we need to have the EW capability, the training, the leadership, the education, uh, and the pipeline. Because um, they're, they're usually first. Representative Bacon, I really appreciate your comment on the focus on operations, right? Trying to closely link operations to, to the electromagnetic <clears throat> spectrum activities just because it is such a dynamic area. Um, and as DOD starts to talk more about mission integration or enabling military forces to operate together and create new effects chains or kill chains, um, seems electromagnetic spectrum capabilities are going to be at the heart of that. Yet one of the challenges we've observed is that there really aren't strong modeling and simulation capabilities, either in the joint staff 
uh, or in Stratcom. So ho hopefully this new organization can help make that possible. Um, a question I had for, for the three of you was um, hearkening back to the, the balloon crisis we faced, um, where, where Chinese uh, stratospheric balloons penetrated U.S. airspace. And I think it underscored the fact that there are balloons, there are satellites, there are right, in-place assets here in the United States that can collect on military operations and, and can observe our training exercises and the like. Um, as Congress starts to look, think about range modernization in different ways, are there new opportunities to think about virtual and constructive training that can probably home uh, hone home station training, you know, make units better when they practice where they are at home, but also make it so that it's more difficult for adversaries to, to collect when they do these large combined exercises? With electronic warfare, you have to have a lot of simulations because a lot of things we do are top secret. So you go to Nellis or you go to wherever out at you know, Utah and you start doing your special jamming modes or, well, that those are easily collected upon. So I know flying a compass call aircraft for a long time and also flying in the RC-135s, you need to fly a little bit because you got to get that air sense. Uh, but a lot of things we do in the air, you're not, you can't, you're, you're not, you're simul you're not actually doing it. In a simulator, you can use all your modes and then you can show what kind of degradation it's having on this radar or on this data signal, which you can't do in real life. So you got to have a very good simulation capability if you want to be good at electronic warfare, and try. And then you got to. And how do you make all the various assets work together, whether it's air or ground? You really can only do that also simulation because the minute you do that real world, oh, the, you know they got satellites sucking all that in. Probably got ground sources as well, as far as we know. Um, See, so you, you got to have it. I thought it was interesting on the balloon. Uh, the the Northcom commander came in. And so they just didn't have the radars programmed for balloons. They were they programmed, for, you know, the Doppler, essentially, for things going three or 400, 500 miles an hour. The balloons don't do that. So they had to change their filters to do that. And then we learned also from that that they had a very, uh, the, I guess, the ability to share all that data over a common network was also very poor. So uh, we walked away from the NORTHCOM commander briefing that there is a lot of work needs to be done on the C2 and, and the ability to, for everybody to have the same picture of what's going on. But to answer your question, we need a very good simulation capability. Actually, we put some of that in legislation too. And I think the JEC will be a good advocate, advocate for this. And the fact that we're putting electronic warfare cells, that's not really the appropriate name for it, and all our co-coms mm -hmm. is going to help. So there's a lot of the structures being put in place that I think will make a difference there. Um, another question I wanted to ask the, the three of you uh, has to do with cooperation with allies and partners. Um, the national defense strategy um, talks about how critical allies and partners are to U.S. national security interests. We invariably will operate with allies and partners, yet our ability to integrate our operations or even collaborate sometimes in the electromagnetic spectrum um, is limited. So as you have sort of engagements with some of your counterparts and go on congressional delegation visits, is this topic of EMS operations starting to bubble up? Or, and is that something that you've considered raising in, in some of your NDAA work? It gets a, it's a, a little tough, but I, um, because uh, if you thought the knowledge of members of Congress is weak on electronic warfare, um, uh, go to countries with militaries that don't have the capability at all. And so I I go to NATO Parliamentary Assembly three times a year. We're meeting with our NATO partners, 
maintaining um, relationships, maintaining the budgets in these countries, trying to get them to up their budgets in these countries, for those who need it up as well. Um, but one thing, over, over the last, it was pre-Ukraine, pre but certainly over the last several years, NATO has been done a, a better job of developing mechanisms where uh, countries of NATO can cooperate outside of doing military activity like, like, like Ukraine. Um, and one such effort is the Defense Innovation Accelerator for North America, shorthand is Diana, conveniently. Um, and uh, it is, it's, basically, it's, it's basically a mashup, think of a mashup of DARPA, of, um, of uh, private sector, and, uh, and intelligence. So it's basically trying to create a, 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 a 31 country, soon to be 32 country, uh, officially effort. Uh, to invest in emerging technologies and collect the money, you know, do a collect the money from other, all these countries to invest in emerging technologies that can be used for NATO-specific uh, needs. And so there's a whole process to define what those needs are. Barbara McQuiston out of uh, R&E and the Pentagon is the chair of the board of Diana. We're able to make that happen. There's two Americans on the board, so we're going to have some influence. We're, we're, we've, we're gonna, we authorize uh, in, in the NDA, um, we put an authorization so the DOD could spend money on it. It's a lousy $47 million over five years compared to the $1.1 billion that the European uh, friends are going to be putting, Canadian friends are going to be putting in. So it's a very small investment for hopefully a big payoff. But that's sort of a process, and we're on the early stages of that. But I think, um, again, our, our prowess in EW uh, really makes it difficult to fully cooperate because uh, it really is a matter of educating, still educating folks on what it is and how it can be used. Can I give one success story? No, no, no happiness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we're here. Uh, yeah. I'm, the, I'm a, a quarter-glass four guy. <laughs> Got to think about that one for a second. Um, so, I, you know, I had four assignments in the 55th wing, and so I EC-130s, RC-135s, sort of, you know, my background big time. The British bought, bought three RC-135s. We had 17 in the Air Force. They bought three, so that's a fleet of 20. And I was sort of the, I had to oversee the training. So we brought in the British into Offutt. We're, we're training guys that had 4,000 hours in the Nimrod. They were teaching us a lot of things. The British had, they pretty much invented electronic warfare, frankly. Mm -hmm. And so that, having a, that synergy between us, they were learning how to fly the RC, but they were teaching us a lot on the science of EW. They, they go to one weapon system frequently. That's where they stay for 30 years. We do our three-year assignments. So just this different culture. Uh, but we really benefit from this mutual training. But my vision, and I worked with Pat Flood on this, uh, who's on our team now, our, our vision was, let's not treat this 17 and 3. I did not want to have a U.S. RC, I'll just hypothetically flying out of value deed, focused on Iran. And, and the British think they have to have that there too, theirs. When, they, when we could maybe treat like a fleet of 20, and we can put, okay, we need to have a need there, the British go over here, we got a need over here, the American will go over here. But that, that means you have to have a common database. Everything goes in the database. I will tell you, I, I, did, I failed while I was active duty, but it became reality after I left. I couldn't get a fleet of 20. The joint staff insisted on 17 and three, because we've never done it any way different. Thankfully, after I left, maybe they just needed a better advocate. They saw the light. That's now they treat it like a fleet of twenty. And I tell you, that's that's a win-win for Britain and America. But the way to do that, then everything has to go into a common database. That we sh because if we won't share what we just learned over X, 
well, then the British can have the plane there. So we got to be able to share that data so that we can integrate our 20. We got that done. But then we had no form. So we've been able to get, so we had to beat that down so that the British can have full access. And then to really do that, you had to be able to put British on US airplanes, Americans on British airplanes. We're doing that now. It's really the, I think it's the benchmark of how allies can work together in the EW area. But it did come easy. I didn't get there during my active duty time. <laughs> yeah, and if I could kind of go back to the original part of the question, which is allies, and I know that you mentioned, you know, Europe and NATO, and um, before this Congress, I was on arms, uh, foreign affairs and was told I had to get off of foreign affirms to be able to be on Intel, our card and the Democrats, um, and, you know, had focused on Asia in particular. So a lot of my travel is in, in Asia um, and I would say similar to what Rick you're observing is it's it's hard to have these conversations when the you know understanding is is very nascent right now and the and the priorities are are in other areas not surprisingly mm-hmm. um, and so it's something that needs to be brought up um, and something that needs to be uh, part of the the conversation just as we're talking about AI or we're talking about any number of kinds of more sexy things that people understand or at least conceive of a little bit better so. Um, I think that we are, you know, leaders in this area and we need to make sure that we're leading with that. It's given me something to think about when I go on my trips that I'll make sure that I'll be talking about in the same way that I'm talking about all the other kinds of um, security issues that we're having with our allies. I suggest, why can't we take the, the U.S.-British model, though? I'll see how we can expand that. Yeah. I think Australia would be a common sense. Yeah. Next up. And then maybe Japan. I'm just saying, there's a way that we could... So- Young at this right now, it, at everything right It now. is, but without Japan fully in 100%. with us, I don't see how we counter China 100%. too well. So there, there are there are examples. You mentioned Australians and with the P8s. We sell the P8s there and, and other other countries as well. Norway, but if I'm not mistaken, the growler, Australia has trained some Growler pilots as well, and they have a Growler yes, have. squad, a couple, I think, two Growler squadrons um, as well. But that th- that's great. But it's still it's a platform by platform thing, right? Mm-hmm. This is like still walking and there's no running at all and there's no there's no big idea there's no big plan um and as opposed to just platform by platform that's not going to cut it and thank you thank uh, you representatives for joining us today your leadership sort of in passion for this really is the reason why dod is now starting to move forward on treating the ems as a critical warfighting area and, and starting to address, I think, some of the glaring gaps that we have today to, to seek advantage in the future. Grateful to all of you for joining us for this conversation. And as I think Congress continues its work, there's going to be new opportunities to, one, I think, figure out what you pass with the Senate, uh, and then, two, chart out the future. So any final words? Yeah, I want to thank Chrissy. Uh, this is our third panel in so many weeks. She's either get, she's going to get real tired of me fast. Uh, and now, we're, now we got, we're, we're going to do a quality of life we're we're in charge of the quality of life panel, trying to help out our junior enlisted primarily who are having to get on stamp. We got housing issues, we got daycare issues, we got medical, and so we have about nine months to come up with proposals for the HASC for the next NDA to improve quality of life. So we're back together in two hours. Yeah, and I, I also <laughs> want to echo that appreciation for you. Um, we were just talking yesterday. We've been on so many things together, whether supply chain or STEM and STEAM, and now on now this, and I'm learning a great deal. So thank you for well, being mutual. my partner in crime on this, uh, and I'll see you in another couple hours. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and thanks to Brian and the AOC for joining us as a partner in this, and to all of you for coming once more. Have a good day.
That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I hope that you enjoyed the Inside Congress perspective on EMSO. Don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please take some time to let us know how we're doing. That's it for today. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at FTCNHost. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, but in the meantime, enjoy your summer. Thanks for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.